Hey there, it's Kathy. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to History of the 90s early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. As the sun broke over the horizon of the Arizona desert on September 26, 1991, four men and four women dressed in dark blue jumpsuits waved goodbye to family members and friends. Then they stepped through an airtight doorway and into a futuristic structure made of glass and steel. The group was about to embark on an unprecedented mission, living inside a completely closed ecosystem cut off from everything but sunlight. But they weren't traveling to outer space. They were staying right here on Earth. I'm Kathy Kinzora, and this is History of the 90s, a podcast about a decade that changed the world. On this episode, we're looking back at one of the most exciting and controversial experiments of the 20th century. This is the story of Biosphere 2. The idea to build a self-sustaining ecosystem in the desert can be traced back to the 1970s and the Synergia Ranch in Santa Fe, New Mexico. The property was home to a counterculture-style commune headed by John Allen a poet, playwright, metallurgist, and Harvard MBA graduate. The 25 or so residents who lived at Synergia ranged from writers and actors to engineers and other brainiacs. They split their time between experimental theater, farming, and furniture making. Plus, they had a deep concern about the ecological demise of the planet long before it became a mainstream anxiety. A frequent visitor to the ranch was billionaire Ed Bass, the oddball hippie brother in a family of Texas oil tycoons. Think Connor Roy from Succession. Bass funded a number of ecological and artistic projects undertaken by John Allen and the other residents at Synergia through a business called the Institute of Ecotechnics. There was an avant-garde performing center in Fort Worth, Texas, where the group staged unconventional plays, a 300,000-acre ranch in the Australian Outback, an eco-friendly hotel in Kathmandu, Nepal, an art gallery in London, and they even built on their own a massive concrete-hulled ocean research vessel. But nothing could compare to the project they began developing in 1984 that blended ecology and technology like never before. With the financial support of Ed Bass, John Allen established the corporation Space Biosphere Ventures, a research company with an out-of-this-world plan. They wanted to create a self-sustaining ecosystem inside a massive terrarium where humans could live in a stable atmosphere simply through the balanced respiration of plants and animals. In the closed recycling experiment, green plants would take human waste and carbon dioxide and turn it into oxygen, water, and food for human consumption. If Space Biosphere Ventures could successfully recreate a mini version of Earth inside an airtight enclosure, it could possibly be used as a prototype for an extraterrestrial habitat ultimately allowing humans to one day live on other planets, like Mars or the Moon. They decided to call their daring project Biosphere 2. It seems weird to say this, but when we started the project, which was, you know, formally begun in 84, it was like five 
five or six years of research and construction to make the facility, people could not even spell the word biosphere. The word sustainability was like a decade into the future. That's Mark Nelson. He moved from New York to the Synergia Ranch in New Mexico in the late 1960s and worked alongside John Allen on multiple projects, including Biosphere 2. And in case you're wondering, Biosphere 1 is the Earth we all live on. Biosphere is a term first coined by scientists in the 1800s and popularized by Russian scientist Vladimir Vernatsky in the 1920s. Essentially, the biosphere is a complex web of ecosystems on Earth, like oceans, deserts, and forests. They all work together as a single unit to create and sustain life on the planet. If one ecosystem is thrown off balance in any way, they are all impacted. Think of that expression, when a butterfly flaps its wings, it can be felt on the other side of the world. The idea of creating a replica biosphere was first attempted in 1972 by the Russians who built BIOS-3 in Siberia as they investigated ways to keep cosmonauts alive in space. The so-called Bionauts set a record when they lived in the enclosed ecosystem for six months, breathing oxygen from algae and eating mainly hydroponic crops. The creators of Biosphere 2 were inspired by the Russians, but they dreamt of doing something bigger and better. They came up with a plan to build an enclosure where eight people would live cut off from the world for two years. It would be the first closed ecological system to produce a complete balanced diet, including animal products like meat, eggs, and milk. And for the first time, all human waste would be treated and recycled inside the enclosure. According to Mark Nelson, both the public and media were fascinated by the idea. Because sometimes projects just tap into a current around the world. And so Biosphere 2 somehow tapped this latent desire, you know, for people to relate to well, what is this world that we live in? What is the role that we have every citizen on planet Earth? Initially, the Biosphere 2 project received primarily positive media coverage in most of the major outlets, including the Washington Post, the New York Times, Time Magazine, Newsweek, and all of the major television networks. An article in Discover Magazine said Biosphere 2 was, quote, the most exciting venture to be undertaken in the U.S., since President Kennedy launched us toward the moon. Even reputable scientists seemed excited about the experiment set to take place in the foothills of Santa Catalina Mountain. But all of that would change shortly before the eight Biospherians were locked inside the glass structure they would call home for 730 days. Before we talk about what happened inside the airlocked Biosphere 2, I want to tell you a bit about what went into creating it. The complex itself is quite a marvel. It's located on the site of a 25-acre ranch on an arid hillside near Oracle, Arizona, which is 35 miles northeast of Tucson. Biosphere 2 is eight stories high and takes up the space of about three football fields. It was built to last 100 years, and the centerpiece is a sprawling glass structure that includes a stepped pyramid attached to a series of barrel-vaulted buildings. 
Located next to the glass structure are two geodesic domes covering what are referred to as the building's lungs. The lungs are connected to the main facility by underground tunnels, and they allow the volume of the air inside to expand and contract throughout the day without causing damage to the structure. It's an architectural feat, and as it was being built in the 1980s, it looked like the future had landed in the middle of the Arizona desert. But what was inside was even more impressive. With the help of scientists at Yale University, the Smithsonian, as well as the director of the New York Botanical Garden, the team assembled a mini cross-section of Earth's most essential elements. And the key players in terms of uh, the great biosphere are biomes. Rainforest, savanna, which is kind of a tropical grass and treed area, a fog desert because it was going to be in a, a structure with a rainforest and with a mini ocean, so adapted to high humidity. We emulated an Everglades uh, wetland and we had a mini ocean with a living coral reef that was mostly collected off of the Yucatan in Mexico. To create the ocean, tanker trucks hauled 100,000 gallons of water from the Pacific in Southern California to form the starter mix. The rest of the million-gallon ocean was created using local water and sea salts. As for the coral reef, it was painstakingly transported in giant moving aquariums on the back of semi-trailer trucks. The team collected a total of 3,800 species, from the Amazon to the Everglades, everything from banana trees and butterflies to fish and hummingbirds. In addition to the biomes, Biosphere 2 also contained a couple of labs in the enclosure, as well as a teleconference center, a library, an exercise room, and living quarters for eight people. They also had a farm to supply their food. We had to design a half-acre, non-toxic, you know, what we would now call an organic or sustainable or regenerative agricultural system to feed the humans. That farm grew over 80 crops, including rice, yams, peanuts, beets, and eggplant. Sewage and wastewater was recycled with the help of plants, soil, the atmosphere, and machines. The same water would be reused countless times for everything from drinking to irrigating crops. Natural gas generators provided the electricity required in the facility to power things like air conditioning, water pumps, air circulators, and the wave machine. Space Biosphere Ventures promised the only thing that would be going in from the outside world during the two-year experiment would be sunlight. At the outset, the cost of the project was predicted to be $30 million, but that ballooned to $150 million before it was over. And again, most of this was funded by oil billionaire Ed Bass. But he wasn't doing it simply to help the future of humanity. Biosphere 2 was also a money-making proposition. First of all, even during construction, the site was open to paying tourists who came by the thousands to tour the perimeter of Biosphere 2 for $12.95 a person. Plus, the inventions that went into creating the enclosed ecosystem were expected to generate lucrative patents. And the ultimate goal for Space Biosphere Ventures was to sell built-to-order biospheres that could be used on Earth and eventually on the Moon and Mars. 
Let's take a journey back to 2003. Canadian teen sensation Avril Lavigne was topping the charts and turning the music industry upside down. But what if I told you that the Avril Lavigne we know and love might not be the same Avril? What? Did Avril die? Was she replaced by a doppelganger? I'm Joanne McNally and I'm doing a deep dive into a notorious internet conspiracy. Who replaced Avril Lavigne? Listen wherever you get your podcasts. The crew of eight people selected to be sealed inside Biosphere 2 was an eclectic group. Four men and four women, five Americans, two Brits, and one Belgian. They ranged in age from 27 to 67. The youngest, Tabor McCallum from Albuquerque, New Mexico, was a high school graduate who skipped college in favor of working at Biosphere 2 during the seven-year planning and construction phase. His job inside the enclosure was to run the lab that would analyze the water, air, and soil in Biosphere 2 during the two-year experiment. The oldest, Dr. Roy Walford from San Diego, was the crew's physician, and he was in charge of biomedical research. Before his involvement with Biosphere 2, he was best known for his belief that a low-calorie, high-nutrient diet could help a person live to 120 years old, knowledge which would come in handy during the mission. Mark Nelson was 44 years old when he was picked to be part of the crew. During his time at the Synergia Ranch, he had been involved in developing new approaches to solving ecological problems. Inside Biosphere 2, he was appointed crew chief, and one of his many jobs included managing the facility's sewage system. The night before the eight Biospherians were to be locked inside the giant terrarium, Space Biosphere Ventures hosted an extravagant party to celebrate the occasion. A diverse mix of celebrities munched on veggies and guacamole served in giant sombreros. Guests included counterculture icon Timothy Leary and actor Steve Gutenberg, as well as John Ratzenberger and Woody Harrelson, stars of one of 1991's hottest sitcoms, Cheers. Remember, the people behind this venture also loved experimental theater. So this wasn't your usual launch party. There was a fire juggler, costume dancers on stilts, and a Native American chanter. All of this played into the growing belief by detractors that this grand experiment was showbiz, not science. Critics called it a cultish, pseudoscientific waste of resources. During the construction of Biosphere 2, at least half a dozen respected researchers from Yale and the Smithsonian left the project, citing what they called differences of substance and style. And the media frequently mentioned that other than Dr. Roy Walford, none of the Biospherians entering the enclosure were doctors or scientists, often referring to the group as recycled hippie actors. While others straight out called them a cult devoted to creating a new civilization. Mark Nelson says they tried their best to ignore the negative media. You know, we took it all with a grain of salt because even when there was negative publicity, you know, the experiment still galvanized people, and it was very dramatic. None of the eight of us actually thought that, you know, by hook or crook, we could last there for two years. On the morning of September 26, 1991, the four men and four women were blessed by a member of the Crow tribe, a Buddhist monk and a Mexican dancer burning incense. 
Then the eight Biospherians dressed in their dark blue jumpsuits that gave off a very definite Star Trek vibe assembled on a stage to say their goodbyes to the 500 people in media from around the world gathered to witness history. Biosphere 2 is like a hole in space and time. It doesn't really exist in the space of Arizona. An enigma in time is this 1991 or 2020. A museum of archetypes. Am I Thalaba the Destroyer or my sweet 16? A civilization waiting to be born. Listen, there's a hell of a good universe next door. Let's go. Then at 8.15 a.m., the crew stepped inside their new home. And Ed Bass, the man who was funding the $150 million experiment, slammed shut the massive front door of Biosphere 2 and secured the airlock. The two-year countdown had begun. Inside their enclosure, the eight Biospherians got to work, caring for their half-acre farm with 16 plots where they could rotate assorted crops of vegetables, grains, and starches. There was also a small orchard of tropical fruit trees and rice paddies to look after. It was a lot of work for the crew. In fact, farming took up 25% of their waking time. Mark Nelson describes it as one of the most productive half-acre organic farms on Earth. Of course, we had the the ability to rein whatever we wanted to by computer controls, but we couldn't even think about using pesticides or herbicides with nasty chemicals because they would get lodged in our air and water. We tried to make Biosphere 2 as pollution-free as possible. A small selection of animals were also raised on the farm. Chickens, pigs, and goats, which provided eggs, meat, and milk. But the animal products supplied only a small portion of the Biosphere 2 diet. Five ounces of milk per day, a few eggs here and there, and a quarter pound of meat per person once a week, which was usually saved for a special occasion. And we decided early on that we would store some food so periodically we could have a feast. Birthdays, holidays, we invented holidays in months that didn't have it. But every time there was a special event with food, All of the tension, all of that just melted away. No one wanted to ruin, you know, this rapturous thing of coming to this incredible feast table, you know, uh, with any bad will. And proving the old saying, where there's a will, there's a way, they even managed to make some special beverages. We had a few young coffee trees in the rainforest, so a cup of coffee Every two or three weeks was amazing. We made really, really bad banana, uh, liquors. Our best thing was a, was a banana wine. Um, next bad was a rice chung, like the Tibetan beer. And then truly awful, but we drank it anyway, was a red beet. Beets did really well in Biosphere 2. With whiskey that we kind of got a a Belgian researcher gave us the the recipe for. But Mark admits they were all pretty hungry all of the time. In fact, he was so famished some days that he would eat peanuts with their shells on. The crew's physician, Dr. Roy Walford, called it a healthy starvation diet. While some of the crew tended to the farm milking goats, weeding and gathering vegetables, the rest worked in other biomes, doing things like pruning vines in the rainforest to make sure sunlight wasn't blocked out. 
Each biome was electrically monitored through a maze of computers in the command center. And most importantly, the crew had to keep an eye on carbon dioxide levels inside the enclosure. CO2 is exhaled by humans and metabolized by plants. And if levels get too high, it can lead to dizziness and confusion and ultimately death. Each morning, the crew discussed the internal atmosphere of their home at a breakfast meeting. And since the very first meeting on day two of the experiment, CO2 levels had been a concern. After just 24 hours with the door shut, the carbon dioxide in the enclosure had risen 521 parts per million, giving Biosphere 2 a reading that was 45% higher than the outside world. And things were only going to get worse. On October 11, 1991, just 12 days into the mission, 29-year-old Jane Pointer from Surrey, England, put her hand in a threshing machine while sifting rice. Dr. Walford was able to sew the tip of her middle finger back on, but it didn't take. And after intense discussions amongst the team, she was removed from the enclosure for surgery. Jane was only gone for a few hours and re-entered the airlock to continue the mission with a repaired hand. But a few months later, it would be revealed that she brought in some other items as well. The experiment hit another bump six weeks after it began. In November 1991, the Village Voice newspaper in New York accused Space Biosphere Ventures of misrepresenting Biosphere 2's ability to recycle the atmosphere. The paper said the group had secretly installed in the enclosure a device known as a CO2 scrubber, normally used inside submarines. The move went against the experiment's advertised goal of recycling all materials naturally. When confronted with the allegation, a Biosphere spokesperson admitted that yes, a CO2 scrubber was installed during construction. But she said it was just a minor aid to help stabilize the atmosphere at the start of the experiment when large fluctuations in the atmosphere chemistry was possible. The admission further damaged the project's credibility. The secrecy certainly didn't look good. And it's hard to sell a greenhouse as being self-sustaining when it needs the help of a device that runs on canisters of non-renewable chemicals. I mentioned earlier that electricity inside the enclosure was provided by natural gas power generators, which is also non-renewable. But on another planet or a space station, the electricity could theoretically be supplied by solar energy or some fancy nuclear fusion trick. Space Biosphere Ventures just decided not to use such an alternative energy source for the two-year experiment to keep the costs down. The CO2 scrubber, though, was a whole other kettle of fish. Critics argued the need for one invalidated the entire project. Then, in January 1992, it was revealed that when Jane Pointer re-entered the airlock after surgery, she brought a duffel bag of supplies with her. It really wasn't anything of substance, some spare computer parts and a planting plan for the rainforest, but the media had a field day with it, saying it was further proof that the experiment was bogus. Things had come a long way from the early days of Biosphere 2 when it was lauded as the savior of humanity. You sort of think what sells newspapers and what grabs people to TV shows well, you build something up, then you tear it down, then you build it up, and you sort of create a false drama. 
And the simplification of bias for two is either that, oh, it's just entertainment, it's echo entertainment, or it's a failure because they promised that everything would go perfectly the first two years. But much of the coverage missed the point that this was just the first phase of an experiment designed to last 100 years. And Mark said they expected things to go wrong. In many ways, it seems like they had a communications problem. Something that might have been different had this experiment happened just a few years later. We learned a lot about how to deal with the media. I really wish we had the internet because then we could have spoken, you know, more directly to people around the world. The controversy didn't stop tourists from making the trip to the foothills of Santa Catalina Mountain to witness history in the making. 500,000 people visited Biosphere 2, making it the second most popular attraction in Arizona after the Grand Canyon. Just like a zoo, visitors pressed up to a plate glass window to watch the Biospherians at work inside their enclosure. Tourists could also go underground and see the ocean at another viewing station, while a guide explained the process of creating a living coral reef in the middle of the Arizona desert. For two years, the glass walls of Biosphere 2 were lined with TV cameras and tourists. The crew's lives were essentially turned into reality TV. In fact, the producers of one of the earliest reality TV shows, Big Brother, which aired in the Netherlands in 1999, acknowledged that Biosphere 2 was their inspiration. One thing tourists didn't hear about was the behind-the-scenes revolt that had begun by the project's scientific advisory committee headed by a biologist from the Smithsonian. The committee was appointed by John Bass in an effort to stem the heavy criticism being lobbed at the experiment. In July 1992, the committee released an assessment on the project's research program. It concluded that the research team inside Biosphere 2 was plagued with poorly defined goals, excessive secrecy, and a lack of qualified personnel. And it said the overly mythical desire to maintain complete closure of Biosphere 2 wasn't necessary. And in fact, it was hampering the experiment because research samples couldn't be sent out and needed equipment and new species of plants and animals couldn't be sent in. As a result, the doors opened a week later and the team began sending out research samples on a regular basis. In total, the airlock doors were opened 27 times to hand over samples, and each time the crew also received supplies, thousands of them. Everything from peanut seeds and vitamins to makeup and mouse traps. And even though these exchanges were on the advice of an independent science advisory committee, it fed into the disillusionment about the project. Meanwhile, inside Biosphere 2, crew members had other problems to deal with. Wintertime cloud coverage contributed to crop failures. Hummingbirds and honeybees died while ant and cockroach populations exploded. The Biospherians lost significant amounts of weight and oxygen levels dropped so low that they had trouble sleeping and experienced nearly constant fatigue. The crew's doctor was having trouble adding up simple figures and disqualified himself from duty. So finally, on a chilly night in January 1993, a truck pulled up to the glass and metal structure and began pumping in liquid oxygen. And the crew came down there and from 14% oxygen, 
which is like a serious mountain climb, like 14,000 feet, almost, well, four and a half thousand meters. You know, suddenly we were in an oxygen-rich environment. Another round of oxygen was pumped into the enclosure in September 1993, just weeks before the experiment was scheduled to end. Eventually, it was determined that overly rich soil had caused the unexpected imbalance of CO2 in Biosphere 2. Because it was supposed to be a 100-year experiment, the team had decided to really load up the soil with compost and rich muck from the bottom of a cattle pond. When the airlocks closed, bacteria in the soil essentially had a massive party, exhaling carbon dioxide and tipping the balance the wrong way. And because life cycles move so rapidly inside Biosphere 2, the imbalance had an immediate impact on the people living inside. A typical and average CO2 molecule spends three or four years up in Earth's atmosphere, then it gets absorbed by a plant or a tree, gets absorbed in the ocean, you know, does, does what CO2 molecules do. That was like two to three days in Biosphere 2 which meant that we had 100 cycles of CO2 a year. So I also like to think of Biosphere 2 as a time machine. It was like Earth, but kind of on steroids. On September 26, 1993, exactly two years after the Biosphere 2 experiment began, Several thousand visitors and 200 members of the media gathered outside the three-acre structure to welcome back the eight men and women. As a 25-piece orchestra played fanfare for the common man, the Biospherians marched triumphantly from the airlock door to a stage set up for the occasion. Dressed in their blue NASA-style jumpsuits, the group was greeted with a standing ovation. Stepping up to the microphone, Mark Nelson said to the crowd, they said it couldn't be done, and here we are, healthy and happy. The eight set a record for living in a closed, ground-based artificial environment, surpassing the six-month stay by four Russians in BIOS 3 in 1984. And yes, they were quite a bit thinner and had orange palms from eating a lot of yams and carrots, but they were healthy. They had managed to supply 80% of their own food, relying on an emergency stockpile for the other 20%. They had recycled all human and animal waste and reused the same water countless times for everything from drinking to irrigating crops. This process of total water recycling is something that NASA wouldn't achieve until 2009. Some of the other species brought into the enclosure didn't do as well. Lobsters and octopus became extinct, and the pigs ended up being slaughtered because they were eating too much. The air leak rate for the structure was less than 10% annually, which was above and beyond anything that NASA's closed system facility at the Kennedy Space Center had ever achieved. Overall, Mark Nelson believes it was a fabulous success. The fact that we lasted in there for two years, I mean, a small fire, a really small fire, would have sufficiently polluted our atmosphere that we would have had to abandon the, the, the experiment. But scientists and media remain skeptical about Biosphere's legitimacy. Science Magazine called the project a hybrid commercial tourist attraction and new age venture. Plus, the company that ran Biosphere 2, Space Venture Biospheres, had a money problem. In fact, they were hemorrhaging cash, losing over $15 million a year. 
Everything was starting to weigh on Ed Bass, the Texas oil tycoon who funded the project. And in an effort to turn things around, he hired someone who will probably surprise you. In 1993, Steve Bannon, who would eventually become an advisor to President Trump, was tapped by Bass to overhaul space venture biospheres. At the time, Bannon was a Beverly Hills-based investment banker specializing in takeovers. And even before the crew emerged, he decided that John Allen and the rest of the leadership would have to go. They were all fired in April 1994, shortly after a second mission inside Biosphere 2 had begun. This time, five men and two women entered the enclosure. And in an effort to improve its image, the second mission would place a bigger emphasis on research, with visiting scientists expected to enter for several weeks at a time. But Steve Bannon had other plans. In September 1994, just six months into the second mission, he shut it down completely. Biosphere 2, as John Allen and the former residents of Synergia Ranch had dreamt it, was over. Humans would no longer be bottled up inside a glass-covered mini-Earth to see if they could survive. That's because Bannon had brokered a deal with Columbia University to take over the running of Biosphere 2, which would now be used by scientists to address narrower, more focused questions, such as how coral reefs are affected by high levels of carbon dioxide. Columbia ran Biosphere 2 until 2003, and eventually the University of Arizona took over. Then in 2011, Ed Bass officially donated Biosphere 2 to the University of Arizona, along with $20 million to support its research. Biosphere 2 still stands today, and science is still going on inside its walls. As for the original crew that survived two years under a dome, they each continue to work on important ecological projects, including Mark Nelson, who is now Dr. Mark Nelson. He went on to study environmental engineering science and received a PhD in 1998. Today, he continues to live on the Synergia Ranch in New Mexico, where he remains hopeful for the future of Earth, also known as Biosphere One. Everything has impacts. So doing you know, one thing a little bit better makes a difference. So I don't think we can afford despair. You know, humanity has never been in this position and we have, you know, we, it's like climate change. We have the tools to solve it. And some of the answers may also come from the research that is being done today at Biosphere 2. The retooled labs inside the giant terrarium have helped to identify that warming oceans are killing corals. Soon, researchers hope to experiment with radical coral reef restoration methods in the enclosure's million-gallon ocean. So while Biosphere 2 might not get us inhabiting other planets like the folks on the Synergia Ranch once dreamt about, it will at least help make Earth a better place to live. Thanks for listening to this look inside Biosphere 2. And thanks to Mark Nelson for joining me to talk about the 730 days he spent living under a dome. If you have a suggestion for a show, I'd love to hear from you. Send me a message through social media. We're on Twitter and Facebook at 1990s History and on Instagram at That 90s Podcast. You can also send an email. The address is 90s at CuriousCast.ca. That's 90s at CuriousCast.ca. This episode was hosted and written by me, Kathy Kinzora. Our producer is Dila Velasquez. Sound design and final production is by Rob Johnston. See you next time for more History of the 90s.